0: Welcome, and thanks for listening to the New Life Christian Ministries podcast. If you'd like more information about New Life or for more podcasts and other media, go to newlifexn.org. Okay, all right, we're going to have a little quiz to start off the message this morning. Five questions, true, true, false. I know everybody's not a biblical scholar. This is bi- these are biblical questions, but um, I think you'll, you'll get to drift after maybe the first one or two. Okay, so number one. The Bible tells us that we deserve to be happy. How many think that's true? That we deserve to be happy. How many true? How many false? False. It's false. Okay, number two. The Bible tells us it doesn't matter what religion we practice as long as we're sincere. How many think that's true? How many think that's false? It's false. Okay, number three. The Bible tells us if we had a little bit more money, we'd be happy. How many think that's true? How many think it's false? See the trend? Okay, number four. The Bible tells us as long as our lifestyle doesn't hurt anyone else, it doesn't matter how we live. Anybody think that's true? How about false? Yes. Okay, number five. The Bible tells us that marriage is a 50-50 performance relationship, and if each person does their 50%, the marriage will succeed. Anybody think that's true? How about false? It's false. Okay, I know, that was an easy quiz, and why did I do that? Because I wanted to show you something The Bible says all of those things are false. Then why does most of America today think that those things are true? If the Bible says it's false, then why do most people, including a lot of Christians, think that those things are true? That if we just had a little bit more money, we'd be happy, that being happy is the most important thing, that our lifestyle doesn't matter as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else, that whatever religion we practice is fine, and that marriage is a 50-50 thing. Where did we get those ideas? We got them from a culture that has forgotten That this nation was founded on Judeo-Christian principles that came right out of this book. That when I was a little kid, when I was growing up, you know, here's what I was taught in history class. That one of the foundational principles of this nation was freedom of religion. That nobody could tell me what to do when it comes to religion. I don't have to worship God or I can worship God as as a Hindu, as a Buddhist, as a Muslim, as a Baptist, as a Presbyterian, as a Catholic, as a whatever. And that was the way it was because the nation was founded on the principle of freedom of religion. But over my lifetime, that's changed. And now many people in America are pushing for freedom from religion. In other words, we can't practice religion because it's too personal or it's, you know, my my point of view is different than your point of view, so let's just not have any religion. Sort of like the John Lennon thing. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. Okay? But everybody wants that to be what it is. Unfortunately, that isn't what it is. It wasn't what it was. But our culture has come to believe and teach lies. And as followers of Jesus, I want us to be sure that we understand what the Bible teaches. Because we're doing a message series called Changed. And in the first three messages, what we decided was that if Jesus Christ became the Savior and Lord of our lives which Jesus said was such a radical change in our life that he called it being born again. And what the King David of Israel said last week was so amazing that it's like we have a, a, we are created a a clean, a new heart in us and a right spirit. The the change is drastic. It's internal and dramatic that if we had that, everything would be different in our lives. And so for three weeks, we've been establishing that truth. And for the last two, what we're going to do is say, how do we live that out, out there in the real world? So that today's message is titled, Invited to Live. To Live in a New and Different Way. And it has a subtitle, and the subtitle is, Discerning the Will of God for Our Lives. And what we're going to seek to do today is to understand what God's will is for our lives. And I know that's a question a lot of Christians ask. They've asked me that for 30 years as a pastor. What does God want me to do with my life? How does God want me to live? And that's what we're going to talk about this week. And and before we move on, I I want to say we're just going to assume that everybody in the room has trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord for these last two weeks. Because I have to assume that Jesus is your Savior and Lord for this to make any sense. Now, if you haven't trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then I would like you to do one of two things. Number one is just do it. Just trust Jesus as your Savior and Lord today. And what that means is give up control so that no longer are you in charge of your life, but Jesus is in charge of your life. Ask him to remove the sin that has gotten in the way of your life, which he did by dying on the cross 2,000 years ago. And then ask him to live inside of you and make that change that we talked about. And if you don't want to do that today, I just ask you to listen. And and do that today and next week. And I think if you listen today and next week, by the end of next week, you may well want to do number one. Okay, so one more question before we move on to the scriptures. And the question, oh, before the question, the take-home point. Here at New Life, we try to make one point every week. I shouldn't say we try. We do make one point every week. And here's the point we're making today, that discerning God's will starts with changing the way we think. Discerning God's will starts with changing the way we think. So um, here's the question that we need to know um, in order to understand, how can we be sure that what the culture is teaching isn't right? Right? How can we be sure that we wouldn't be happier if we had a little bit more money? How can we be sure that happiness isn't the goal of life and that we deserve it? How can we be sure that any lifestyle isn't okay? How can we be sure that any religion isn't okay? How could we be sure that if Nancy and I would each figure out what our 50% is and do it, that we wouldn't be happy in marriage? Well, this is the question. Is what the Bible teaches God's will for us? Is what this book teaches true And is it God's will for us? Now, I understand that some people think this is a book of myths and legends. I understand that some people think that this is just a religious book like any other religious book. It's no more important or less important than any other religious book. I understand that some people say, you realize, Chris, this book was written 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. It was written in the Middle East. It was culturally conditioned. It was temporally conditioned. It has nothing to say to people living in 21st century America. I understand all of those things. But here at New Life, we believe that there was a man, actually, he was God, is God, his name's Jesus, he was in heaven, and one day, he came from heaven, and he became a, a human being, and he was a little baby, he grew up, and he, he lived for 33 years, plus or minus, here on earth, and he taught the truth of Jesus, which is the truth of God, because Jesus is God. We believe that here at New Life. And we believe that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for human sin, that he rose from the dead to show that he was really God, and that he went back to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to empower us, and that one day he's going to return, and he's going to establish his kingdom forever. We believe all of that. And I understand some of you don't believe any of that. But here at New Life, that's what we believe. And when you have a set of beliefs that are clear and that are based in truth, then it isn't so hard to discern God's will for your life. So, here's the thing. If we have a set of standards and somebody says something out there in culture, then we can compare our standards to the culture and figure out which one is right, which one is wrong. 33 years ago, I was in seminary, and my good friend Tom Parker took a class called Human Sexuality. And he came home one day from that class, and he said, you're not gonna believe this, Chris. He said, we were having a debate about a certain matter of sexuality, and and a girl raised her hand and she said to Professor, I just wish we had some guidelines. He goes, do you believe that? He said, the whole Bible tells us what we're supposed to do when it comes to sexuality. What more could we want? Now there's a good question. What more could we want? Well, I know what more we could want. We could want the Bible to say what we want it to say. We could want the Bible to say what we want to do is right. We could want everything to be conditioned on our perspective. That's what we could want. And that's what we do want. What we want in our basic heart is for God to agree with us. And and whatever we think, whatever we believe, whatever we want to do, that's what's true. But that isn't what the Bible says. It isn't what Jesus said. It isn't what any of the authors of the scriptures say. So what more could we want than the truth? Well, Unfortunately, most of us want a lot more than the truth. We want the truth to be what we want it to be. So today, we're going to look at what the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of people called the Romans. It was a church in Rome. And the church was made up of Jews and Gentiles, which simply means Jews, obviously, were the people that God had called out, you know, through um, Abraham and Moses and all those people, right through Jesus. Jesus was a Jew. And, and then the Gentiles are just everybody who's not a Jew, so that's everybody. And he told them how, how we can change How we can live our lives the way God wants them to be lived in Romans chapter 12. But before we do that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we turn to Romans 12, show us your will and teach us what we need to know and do to discern it and change us to be and live more and more like Jesus every single moment. This we pray in his name. Amen. I usually say at this point, if you have your Bible, open it up. That would be a good thing because we don't have a screen today. If you have a Bible app, you can turn there and, you know, go to Romans 12. It's only two verses. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Here's what it says. God's word says to us. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Now, this is a really short reading, but it's filled with basic truth about how we can live more and more according to God's will. And uh, Paul mentions to the Romans that because of what Jesus has done for them, all of us can have a different life, a new life, and it's going to happen in a way that we might not ever consider. So before we get into that, the first two words in the New Living Translation, and and we read from the New Living Translation here at New Life, and I'll tell you why. Because it's it's an easy-to-understand modern English translation. And uh, what we want people to do is understand when they read God's Word, and we know you can't do that without the Holy Spirit. But as you read it, the words are easy to understand, so we use New Living Translation. As you'll see in a moment, I have a preferred translation that I like to read from, for my personal study. But if you really want to read the Bible in its original language, you have to learn Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, which most people don't want to do. New Living Translation, NIV is a good version. Some people think King James is the only translation. If you like Shakespeare, you'll like the King James. The New King James is a good translation. Okay. Now, the reason I bring that up is because the New Living says, and so. Well, in the original Greek, it says, therefore... And I always say this, when you come to the word therefore in the Bible, you should stop and see what it's there for. The reason Paul starts Romans 12 with therefore is because he has spent several chapters telling us that Jesus Christ has loved us so much that he died on the cross for us, that he rose again for us. He has given us a new life. And he says something amazing. He says that because of that, there is no fo- therefore no condemnation for those who love Jesus. People live their lives in condemnation, but there is no condemnation for those who love Jesus. And so since we know all of that stuff, therefore, therefore what? What are we gonna do? And that's what this is all about. What are we gonna do once we know that Jesus died for us, rose for us, all that? That's all good stuff, but what do we do with it? He says, therefore, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. So, as, uh, as the Apostle Paul wanted us to understand, that since God did everything for us through Jesus' death on the cross, and since God gave everything to us when Jesus rose from the dead, in other words, what he gave to us is a new life that starts on the inside but eventually comes to the outside, we should be what? Living sacrifices. Now, that's an oxymoron. A living sacrifice? The Apostle Paul knew that a sacrifice was an animal that you put to death so that your sins could be atoned. I love the word atonement. It's, break it down, at one meant. It means I'm at one with God. And whenever I'm, my, my sins separate me from a relationship with God, so an animal has to die, his blood has to be shed to put me at one with God. And so Paul says, because of all Jesus has done, we should be living sacrifices. How? Well, we can be living sacrifices because Jesus died once and for all. No more sacrifices are ever necessary. Once Jesus died on the cross, he was the once and for all sacrifice. So we don't have to die. He, did, he died to death. We couldn't die. And he, he died because our sins required death and blood. And so he died. And so what do we get to do? We get to live. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? It means that everything we are, everything we think, everything we do is for him. So we get to be living sacrifices. That's what the Apostle Paul said. Now, if we're going to do that, we're going to have to change one really basic thing about the way we think. When we come out of our mother's wombs, we think we own everything. If you don't believe me, ask a two-year-old. Two-year-olds think, mine, mine. No, it's mine. No, mine. What's mine is mine. What's yours is mine. That's what a two-year-old thinks, right? And, And as we grow up, as we grow up, we might learn or be conditioned to not act that way. But in our minds, we always think everything is mine. What you have is mine. What I have is mine. Until something happens, ownership changes. Until we understand I am not my own, I belong to God. You see, once I understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins, and once I receive that into my life, once I'm born again, I understand I'm under new ownership. I'm under new ownership. I'm now owned by God, and God owns everything about me. And that's why I will shave with a little razor, because I want to do everything the best I can do instead of that electric shaver. I really wish I wouldn't have spent that money on that electric shaver. You know, because it ultimately doesn't glorify God. It's his, though, so I guess that's all right. He can do something else with it. Anyway, do you see what I'm saying? It's not mine, it's his. My car's not mine. Your car's not yours. And you go, I know the bank owns it. No, see, it doesn't matter who owns your house. It's not yours. Everything belongs to God, and we have that problem, first off, of knowing who owns what, And, and, and Paul understood that even once we get that right... Even once we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we still don't really live that way, and so he gives us some more practical advice. He says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Now, I like the New Living Translation, pretty good translation of the original Greek, but the New International gets it a little better. It says this, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So you see, they're basically the same, but the New Living Translation says, Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world. The New Intervent National says, don't conform to the pattern of this world. The original Greek word actually says, don't be molded to the pattern of this world. Has, have any of you ever made jello? Anybody ever made jello? Okay, jello starts out, you put water in a pan and you heat it up, right? You put the dust from the jello thing into the pan and you stir it until there's no dust left, right? So then, I don't know if you boil it or what, because I don't make jello very much. But anyway, you put it in a pan. If you're not very creative, you just put it in a little square or a rectangle pan. But if you're really creative, you might put it in a pan that's shaped like a butterfly or a race car or something else. And then you put it in the refrigerator and you wait. And after however long you have to wait, you get it out and you turn it over and it looks like a race car or a butterfly or a square pan. Because the jello has been molded to the shape of the mold. And what does Paul say? Don't let the world mold you like jello, don't let the world shape you into its shape but what but be transformed changed by the what the renewing of your mind or change the way you think now this is the interesting thing about that to me because you know when i was a little kid i started reading the bible and i accepted jesus when i was 12 and when I read Romans 12, verse 2, I was very excited because I always thought that if you were going to become like Jesus, you would have to do the spiritual stuff. You know, like pray, and you'd have to fast, and you'd have to give, and do all those kind of things. And those are all good things, and we do want to do those. But what Paul says is, you have to change the way you think. And I was like, yes, because I like to think. God gave me an excellent mind, and I like to think. I've always liked to think. I like to reflect on things. And, and as I read that, as a little kid... I thought, wow, you know, I always thought the way you became a Christian was you did what the Sunday school teacher said, you did what the preacher said, you did what it said in the book. You didn't have to think. And then I would go to school, and they didn't tell me the same stuff that they told me in Sunday school. And I went out into the world, I watched television, you know, and even as a little kid, I watched television, and i go, that can't really happen. You know, or I'd listen to commercials as a little kid, and I'm like, I don't think if I ate that kind of peanut butter, I would be better than if I ate the other kind. You know? I mean, there just seemed to be so much stuff that was hard to believe that was out there in the world. And people, adults, would be talking, and, and I'd go, that's not what the preacher said. That, that's not what the Sunday school teacher said. But Paul gave me permission to do something. Think. And, and I'm, I want to give you permission if you've never had permission before. Think. You know, it's a very, very uh, productive activity. In fact, I read a statistic the other day because I'm always reading and it was really discouraging to me. It said that the average American who goes to high school but doesn't go to college, 33% of them never read another book the rest of their life. That's one out of three. If you go to college, 43% of people who go to college never read another book the rest of their life. I guess they figure they're smart enough. Now, here's what I know. There's a guy named Charlie Tremendous Jones, and Charlie Tremendous Jones said, you're gonna be the same person you are today five years from now except for the books you read and the people you meet. And he's right. In fact, I'm writing a book right now. It's called Charlie Was Right. And it's a book about how the people I've met in my life have changed my life and how the books I've read in my life have changed my life. And I think it'll be a book people will like to read, unless you're one of those 33%, 43%, they're never gonna read another book. But here's the point. Paul understood that the mind is something God gave us to use so that when the world says stuff that's not true, we can go, I don't think that's true. And we can evaluate it based on the word of God and we can say, huh, it isn't true. And Because you know what happens is, when the world says if you had a little bit more money, you'd be happy, you only have one of two choices. You can say, oh, the world's right? Or you can say, I'm not jello. I'm not jello. I'm not gonna believe it just because the world says it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna compare what the Word of God says, and then I'm gonna let the Word of God shape me in those areas where the world is telling me something different. I'm gonna give you a very important area where the world told us something different. Back in the 1970s, a new word was coined. And you're not gonna believe that this word has only been out since the 1970s, but it is true. Lifestyle. The word lifestyle never existed until the 1970s, and the word lifestyle uh, is often associated with alternative lifestyle or homosexual lifestyle, those kind of words, lifestyle. Lifestyle is a word that was created in the 70s, and in just four or five decades, we've come to believe that whatever lifestyle somebody wants to live is okay, so long as it, what, doesn't bother somebody else, right? But that's not true. You see, for instance, the homosexual lifestyle. Homosexuality has been with us since creation, just about. If you've ever read the book of Genesis, you've heard about Sodom and Gomorrah. There was homosexual activity. But the thing is, up until the 1970s, in most places, in some places around the world today, homosexuality was considered an aberration or a perversion or a sin. But now in our day, it's considered okay by most people. Majority. I'm not saying most people, but a majority of Americans. All right. So how do we decide what's true? Do we vote? Or do we say the word of God is true and I'm gonna believe the word of God even when it doesn't agree with the culture? Well, Paul said, don't be molded like jello, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and that transformation comes by learning the truth and living out the truth. So here's what I want you to think about for a minute. In Genesis chapter one, in the order of creation, before there was anything bad, only good, God said, let us make man or humanity in our own image And then it says, so they created God, no, they created humanity, male and female, he created them, and he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, have dominion over it. And then in chapter 2, when God creates Adam and Eve, it says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, I want you to think about homosexual and heterosexual practice in America today. Cohabitation, living together, okay? Everybody thinks it's okay. Well, the Bible doesn't think it's okay, but everybody thinks it's okay. You know, it's like trying out a new car, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't take a car out and buy it without test driving, right? So you try that with cohabitation. Homosexual practice, you know, it's okay if two guys or two girls want to get together. It doesn't bother anybody, it doesn't hurt anybody. But what does the order of creation tell us? It tells us there was a man and there was a woman, and they came together. And if you're going to be fruitful and multiply, that's sort of necessary to have a man and a woman. Even if you're an evolutionist, you know, two men, two women, pretty much a dead end, evolutionarily speaking. But, but the Bible teaches from the order of creation that we come together as a man or a woman. And, and, and some of you are saying, Chris, this is Mother's Day. Why are you talking about something like this on Mother's Day? You know, and, and the reason I'm talking about it on Mother's Day, number one, it's always good to talk about truth no matter what day it is. There shouldn't be like one day a year reserved to talk about the tough stuff. Like that day we talk about abortion, homosexuality, you know, world hunger and all those things. And we just talk about, I don't know what, the rest of the year. But there's a reason because what's Mother's Day about? It's about life. It's about mothers. You see, my mother had two children, Jim and Tom. They were 15 and 13. When Tom was born, his head was about this big. Well, maybe only this big. Okay, it did some internal damage to my mother. She couldn't have any more children. So 13 years later, the doctor said to my mother, Ruth, we have some ability now. We could change some stuff inside of you. You could have children again if you want to. And so my mother and my dad sat down with my brothers. And they said, we're thinking about having some more children. Thank God for that, or you'd have an awful quiet sermon today. (laughs) You see... My mother and dad, in the context of their marriage, decided that even though their kids were 15 and 13 and they could have just waited like five more years and they wouldn't have had any more kids to bother with, that they would have another one. And so I was born uh, uh, nine months later, and then they decided to have another one so that I wouldn't be spoiled. And that didn't work out real well. But, but anyway, anyway, I have a little brother along with my, myself and two older brothers because my mother and dad got married. They did what the Bible says, be fruitful and multiply now, my dad wasn't the greatest dad in the world, but he did me the honor of something that so many people don't get to have the, anymore, and that is I had a mom and a dad. 50% of American kids don't have a dad or a mom, you know, because there are single moms and there are single dads. And, and, and I, my heart goes out to single moms and single dads. But I want you to understand, it is not God's purpose for men to live with men, women to live with women, or men and women to live by themselves, raising their children. That's not the order of creation. And now here's the thing. Please hear me. If you don't hear anything else I say today, the thing I'm not saying is those wicked people because they don't have a husband or they don't have a wife. What I'm saying is we as the church of Jesus Christ cannot agree with the world and say that anything is okay as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. Everything is okay as long as you know we're willing to go along with it. No, there's a lot of stuff that's not okay. And if we will speak the truth in love, then the world will change but the world isn't going to change when the church is going you people you wicked evil people it's not going to happen we're all wicked evil people until god gets a hold of our hearts and then we get changed from the inside out and then our lives start to change as we let the truth change the way we think And, and Please, please, please don't check your brain at the door either when you're coming in or going out of this place. Because the world needs thinking Christians. Not stinking Christians, thinking Christians. Okay, thinking Christians who understand that the truth combined with love is Jesus' formula for transformation. It always has been. It always will be. And so when Paul said, don't become jello, Don't let the world mold you and shape you the way the world wants to mold you and shape you. You were created for so much more than that. You know, some people think that what a Christian is is just you accept Jesus into your life, you get saved, and then you wait to die, and you just live like the world. No. What happens when Jesus comes into our life and changes? We're born again. We get the opportunity to live the life we were created to live before the foundation of the universe. A long time ago in the 1600s, there were a group of people, they call them the Westminster Divines. They sat down to decide what was the chief purpose of human beings. They asked that question, what is the chief end of man or humanity? And I love their answer. It's the best answer I ever heard. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. You see, if we go out of here today and we pick up this book and we read the truth that's in it, and we let the spirit of the living God transform our hearts so that we can share it in love with people, people will change. We will change. People will change. The world will change. And that's Jesus' plan. And he didn't have another plan. There's no plan B. Jesus lived for 33 years on the earth. He went back to heaven, and he's been there for 2,000 years. And when he left, he said to everybody that was you know, following him, go into all the world, make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to do what I've commanded you. That's this part, and I'll be with you always to the end of the age. That's the Holy Spirit. So it's so simple, not easy, but simple. And so here's today's commitment: I will let God change my thoughts to conform with His will. Look at that. I will let uh, you. Ha- you can look at it. It's on the front page of your little worship thing, right below the infant and child dedication thing. Even though it's not up on the screen, we wanted to make sure you had it. I will let God change my thoughts to conform with his will. That process is sometimes agonizing because when I have to think in such a way that I am thinking like God, that means I have to say, Chris Marshall is not in charge anymore. And that's hard. You will have to say, Whatever your name is, if God is gonna lead me, I'm not in charge anymore. I'm gonna to have to let the truth be the truth, even if I don't like it. And there's a lot of stuff in the Bible I don't really like. There's no T at the end of my name, just Chris, not Christ. So therefore, I don't get to change anything, I just get to be changed. It's such an amazing thing. We don't get to change anything, but we get to be changed. And by our change, we can impact other people and they change and pretty soon there's this movement and that's what Jesus planned. The world would be transformed by people who knew him, who lived like him, who thought like him, who spoke like him. So we're invited to live a life that's incredible and all it takes is a changed heart and a changed mind. And I should say, a changing mind, because our minds will continue to change as we grow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you love us enough not to leave us be the way we are. Thank you that when we are born again, we don't stay babies, but we can grow up to be men and women who reflect Jesus. Thank you for giving us not just permission, but calling us to think and to reflect. And God, I pray that as we go out today, that you will renew our minds, that you will change us from the inside out, that we will never live like jello again, letting the mold shape us, but that we will be molded by you, that you might be glorified, and that we might enjoy you forever. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.